If you have your Bibles, open them up again to Matthew chapter 1. By the way, as I've been thinking about just kind of Christmas series and where I want to go in the new year and what that's looking like, um, I think I probably should just tell you, get comfortable in Matthew. I think that's what we're, we're just going to keep walking through Matthew in the new year. I don't know how long we'll do it for, because if I go the pace that I'm going right now, it'll be like six and a half years. I don't want to commit to that. So we'll go through Matthew. What I'm saying to people is like, we'll go through Matthew until I get bored of it. And then I'm not going to get bored of it. But if we'll go off and then come back and we'll see how it goes. But I'm just, I'm having fun walking through Matthew with you. So we're going to keep doing that, which means even into the new year, we'll still talk a little bit about wise men and it'll be fun. Next week, I will not be here. Uh, I'm doing a wedding in Houston next week. So Pastor David will be preaching uh, here. And so he's going to take this idea of the whole story and carry it out a little bit more through Luke's gospel and then we'll go Christmas, and it'll be New Year. So welcome to the plan is how we move forward. Two weeks ago, we opened up the book of Matthew, and we looked at Matthew's claim as to who is this person we call Jesus. Uh, and, and I said at that time, and still hold to, Matthew, when he's doing this, he doesn't write a theological treaty. He doesn't give some sort of textbook as to who Jesus is. But instead, what Matthew does is he gives you a story and then he invites you in to explore this story and the complexities and the nuances. And Matthew's confident that when you do that, you, you don't find some secret Bible code that no one's discovered before. But what you find is, is this Jesus that we know and love and worship just becomes bigger and bigger and more and more marvelous. And so we did this just even looking at the genealogy in Matthew, this text that so often we look at and think, I don't understand why this is even here. And we pass, brush past it that Matthew's rooted in so many things, even just in that. And so if you've not heard that, it's on our Google Podcast or Spotify. You can go back and listen to it. Uh, it was a really fun sermon to preach. And I know you're thinking, there's no way you can make a genealogy fun. I had fun with it, so you can decide for yourself. If not that, it's a great way to fall asleep at night, okay? So, um, and so then what Matthew's going to do in the second half is he's going to launch from the genealogy into the story of Jesus, He's going to march forward. And while his claim is a little bit more direct, a little bit more surface level in the second half of Matthew 1, there's still so much to contextually unpack. So that's what we're going to try to do. But before I get to that, I have to admit to you, and you know this because I've already told stories about this before, there are times uh, in my life where I just tend to get stuck in certain places. In fact, as I was thinking about examples of this this week, I can only come up with examples I'm pretty sure I've already used. So I talked about last year about uh, getting stuck while I was going hunting uh, outside of Socorro, getting my Jeep stuck on top of a mountain and having to call in for rescue and help. Uh, I talked about getting stuck in the Seattle fish market bathroom and my wife having to rescue me out of that bathroom. You can ask her about more information to do with that. It was one of the more embarrassing days of my life. Um, but I've learned that I just have this tendency that I get stuck, and then I rely on my wife or someone else to pull me out of things. And I think this is something that was kind of like deeply ingrained to me as a child. And I'm not saying it was anyone's fault in particular, except for it was my mom's fault. And so um, here's what I mean by that. It wasn't really her fault. Uh, but one of the most traumatic childhood experiences, which just will tell you just how cushy of a life I have, I get it. But one of my most traumatic childhood experiences is around fifth grade, I hit one of those phases that I thought school lunch was disgusting. I didn't want to eat that disgusting pizza or whatever it was, so I packed my lunch. Well, I packed my lunch. I didn't pack my lunch. You know exactly who packed my lunch every day. My mom packed my lunch every single day, and I would take my lunch box to school. And about halfway through my fifth grade year, I developed this bad habit of forgetting my lunch box in the classroom. 
And so it got to the point that I had done this four or five times. There was just this pile of lunch boxes in my little cubby hole in my classroom. And my mom didn't have anything else to pack my lunch in. And so I wake up that morning. She says, Philip, you don't have any lunch boxes here. I can't pack you lunch today. It's one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Because do you know what that meant I had to do that day? I had to go eat cafeteria food, to go through the cafeteria line all by myself without anyone to help me and eat that nasty food. It just totally ruined my day. I was trapped in this having to go to the cafeteria lunch line, just, just traumatized me for life. And I remember in my fifth grade little hyper optimistic positive self sitting in my classroom thinking, you know, maybe my mom will feel bad for me. Maybe she'll like pick up Burger King or something and bring it by the office and drop it off. And so I just kept waiting as lunch got closer for the announcer to come on the intercom and say, uh, we have a thing in the office. Can Philip Smith come pick it up? And I waited and I waited and we were lining up for lunch and it never came. And as we were leaving the classroom, it never came. And as I went to the lunch line, it never came. And my whole life just came crumbling down around me because no one came to rescue me from the school lunch line. Isn't that horrible? How, how traumatic of an experience. Have you ever been there? Right? You, you make a couple maybe bad decisions. Just not, maybe not even intentional bad decisions. Just absent-mindedness. You leave your lunchbox at school. And then you get stuck in the consequences of those actions. Wishing desperately something would come rescue you out of it. You get stuck dating that person for three years. Wishing that something would come along and rescue you. But you've already committed three years and well... Maybe this is just what it is. And, or uh, you've been working that same job without a pay raise for 10 years since high school. And you're there just wishing someone would offer you a different job or something else. But this is where you've been. So this is where you're staying. Or you left 17 lunch boxes at school hoping desperately that mommy's special boy doesn't have to go through the lunch line. And then you still have to. Welcome to first century Israel on a much, much bigger scale. Because in first century Israel, they had been exiled for their sins to Assyria and Babylon, which was then overtaken by Persia, which was finally allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, or at least a handful of them to go back to Jerusalem. But that was only temporary, only to again be overtaken by Rome. And you have not just one person, but an entire nation for generations, desperately hoping for rescue to come. But, but here's the key difference. They have, within their sacred text, multiple promises from God, a hope that someone would actually come to rescue them. This is the underlying premise for which Matthew is talking about. This is the underlying premise of the gospel, and it's exactly what Matthew is going to explain to us. So let me just jump into this story and read it, and let me see if I can show you how rescue is at play right here in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what she has been, uh, what she has, what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. 
So when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her, but did not have relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to do kind of what I've been doing through Matthew so far, is just walk through this text a little bit, highlight some key points that I think are important, and then at the end we'll bring it home by asking two questions. Given this story, who is Jesus? And since we know Jesus, then asking the question, who are we? Let's, let's just start into this verse-by-verse verse breakdown, verse 18. It starts like this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. Now, already, I know I did this a little bit two weeks ago, but I need to do it again so that you can kind of understand what's, what's going on here. If you look up in verse 1, it says, An account of the genealogy, or yours might say the origins of the genealogy, but that word genealogy is the word genesis in Greek. So the, Matthew opens by saying biblos genesis, or the, the book of... Genesis, which is not the book of Genesis, it's the book of Jesus, but Matthew's doing something to tie you back. So we talked about how the story of Jesus stretches from eternity to eternity. But then when you get down to verse 18, Matthew's going to switch from the genealogy to the birth story. And so our English text reads the birth of Jesus Christ, but here's the significant thing. That word birth in verse 18 and that word genealogy in verse 1 are actually the same Greek word. It's the genesis of Jesus. Which this then just floods us with implications, with contextual stuff. When does the story of Jesus begin? Does it begin at the conception uh, within the womb of Mary? Does it begin before time begins in the opening of Genesis? And I think what Matthew wants us to understand is the origin of Jesus is both. It stretches into the halls of eternity's past and eternity future. But it also happens within the womb of a young Jewish girl. This is the story of Jesus unfolding for us. So if you want to understand this baby born of Mary, if you want to know who this man that we call Jesus is, then you need to both understand the ins and outs of the 33-year life story of him on earth, and you need to know the ancient story of Israel and the Hebrew Bible. And he's going to pick up on that right from the start in verse 18. So he ties us back to Genesis with the birth of Jesus. And then he says, it came about in this way, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So twice, here and then when the angel is talking to Joseph, Matthew highlights that Mary, before she could have a baby, was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And I know it's Christmas and I know we in Christian circles and contexts have been kind of inundated with this story to the point it kind of feels normal. But just step out of Christian context for a little bit. Can we please not pretend like this is normal? Like this is just something that, yeah, it just happens. I think sometimes we even think that like, well, people back there like just believe stuff like that. So it wasn't that big of a deal. They understood how having babies worked. They understood how producing children worked. It was not normal then. It is not normal now. It's not something that we should just overwrite as some pretty story that we're like, oh, yeah, Matthew is doing something here. Now, critics of the Christian faith will come in and they'll say, hey, uh, I think what's really happening is Matthew and Luke, they're trying to appeal to a wider Gentile Greek and Roman audience. And so the idea of the gods procreating with humans was normal within Greek context. Uh, Achilles, these types of characters. And so they just want to appeal to that. And so they write this in to try to make it appeal to a wider audience. So this is what Richard Dawkins argues in his book, God Delusion, some other prominent atheists and critics of the Christian faith. And with all due respect, eh, maybe not that much due respect, but anyways, with all due respect, 
that totally misses what Matthew's trying to accomplish here? Because Matthew, a good Jewish man, does not have any care in the world for what Roman paganism believes. To, to him, that's just something that's so untrue, it's not even worth considering the time of day for. It would be like you meeting someone in Walmart and they really believe Batman exists. Like, you're not even going to waste your time trying to convince them that Batman doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. You don't think about it. So Matthew's doing something different here, but if we don't understand the context, we miss what the claim is that's happening. Because Matthew's given us two clues right in verse 18, the genesis of Jesus, the genesis, and then pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Why not use something like God's power? It would work just fine in Mary, who had been made pregnant through the power of God. We could read that, move on, not even blink twice at what's going on. But Matthew is doing something where he's tying Genesis and the Holy Spirit together in this creation. Is there any time that we see the role of the Holy Spirit play a role in creation in the book of Genesis? Oh yeah, page one of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. Matthew is intentionally doing this so that we take what's happening in the birth story of Jesus and we tie it back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. So what's the Spirit do in Genesis chapter 1? The Spirit brings life to a lifeless situation. We did a whole sermon series through this this year. The Spirit creates and sustains life where there otherwise could never be life. So in Genesis 1, the lifelessness gives way to life through the presence of the Holy Spirit resulting in creation. That creation then goes belly up through the sins of man. But then in Matthew chapter 1, there is a recreation within the womb of Mary as lifelessness gives way to life again through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Are you seeing the parallel structure within this? Matthew, a Jewish man, would have said, you should be able to pick up on this. It's a little bit harder when we're 2,000 years removed. I understand that. Matthew's not trying to appeal to a wider Greek audience. He's rooting this into who he believes and who he knows the Holy Spirit to be from page one of his Bible. It's rooted through God proving that through Jesus, he's going to set creation back to its original purpose. Now, that doesn't mean this wasn't a scandalous situation. Mary becomes pregnant, and we see, as she tells Joseph in verse 19... So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So again, let's not pretend like this is just normal. Joseph, when he gets word of this, does he believe Mary? Absolutely not. Joseph does not believe Mary. He goes to divorce Mary. Now again, there's a lot of context at play. I can't put as much time as I was planning into this for time's sake. But uh, it's in first century Judaism, it was the legal term arusin. And this wasn't just like... This guy proposed to her, and now they're engaged in doing wedding prep together, and that's it. Hoorah. This is legal contract binding stuff led by their parents that had probably been in the works for generations. Nazareth is a small town, 500 people or so. I mean, you think Portales is a small town. Nazareth was a small town. Everyone knew everybody's business. And so probably from the time these two children were born, their parents were already matchmaking and planning. So they draw up all these legal contracts. Here's what the dowry cost is going to be. Here's how long Joseph has to build the house. When he marries Joseph, here's the date. Or when Joseph marries Mary, here's the date. All of this stuff is coming into play in this. And they've even signed off on it that's officialized the Arusin, the betrothal process. It is a legal binding relationship at this point. In fact, so legally binding that Joseph would have had every right in the case of adultery to take Mary to court, or in their case, in a town of 500, just to take her probably to the public square. 
plead his case for she had to commit adultery, it wasn't me, and she's pregnant. Not a hard case to win, probably, for Joseph. And then publicly shame her. He could have gotten his dowry back, moved on, and forgotten everything about it. Now, Joseph doesn't want to publicly shame her, but he does want out at first. And so Joseph dodges out of this and tries to divorce her quietly. But then verse 20 comes in and says, After he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And I just kind of was thinking about that phrase, after he considered. Matthew doesn't tell us, and I don't really think there's a good way of knowing. But I just wonder, how much time is in that phrase, after he considered? How much time transpired between the conversation between him and Mary, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And Joseph's like, what? With who? There's 500 people in this town, Mary. What's going on? How much time transpires between that and the dream he has where the angel affirms it? The way Matthew talks about it, it seems like there's at least some time between Mary's confession and the angel's affirmation. How many days does he tell his parents? What's the rumors that have already been let loose in the town? I mean, Luke tells us that Mary actually leaves Nazareth to go be with her cousin Elizabeth. Is that some way to try to cover this up? What's going on in this story? Matthew doesn't really tell us. It's all speculative. But the Bible makes this much clear. This miraculous birth rooted in the very opening of scriptures that we sing Christmas songs about and we portray as beautiful and poetic and incredible was not poetic and beautiful to Mary and Joseph. It was messy. It was hard. It was confusing. I mean, you could do a whole sermon about that in itself, about how often God's movement in our life is not poetic and beautiful. It's hard, confusing, and messy. But yet it's still God moving. It's still God making a difference in the world around us. But eventually the angel confirms it, appears to Joseph in a dream, and we get to verse 21, which is like the thesis of Matthew's book. So the angel appeared to Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what, she, or what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now I know I've done this before. I'm going to keep doing it because I think it's one of the coolest parts of scripture and we just miss it in modern English. Now, people that day, did they call Jesus, Jesus? No, they called him Yeshua. That would have been the Aramaic Hebrew kind of way of saying it. Yeshua is even a shortened version of the name Yehoshua. So two, two Hebrew words, Yeho, or another way of saying Yahweh or Jehovah, God, right? Shua saves. So Jesus' name is God saves. And then what's the angel's next phrase? You're to name him God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. In fact, the, the Hebrew or the Aramaic, similar languages, probably would have sounded something like, uh, you are to name him Yeshua Yasha. Yeshua, God saves, Yasha, he saves. And again, this flood of implications comes pouring in. Name him God saves because he will save. Wait, who's going to save? Will, will Jesus save or will God save? Yes. This is the cool thing about what Matthew's saying in Scripture. Who, who is this human with no heaven or no earthly father? Who, who is this son brought to life in a lifeless situation in the womb of a Jewish teenager through the Holy Spirit? How is he going to save? Who is he going to save? What does it mean to save? And it's only going to go deeper from here. But welcome to Matthew's claim that he wants you to reckon with. Who is this man named God saves who is going to save? What does it even mean to save? We'll get back to that too. 
And then he gives this term, we'll save his people. Now, this one's kind of interesting to us in modern day America because who are his people? Matthew's given you a genealogy, right? His people would be in reference to Israel from Abraham all the way down through the exile, through the King David. This is his people, Israel. How many of you, how many of you guys can trace your lineage back to Israel? I can't. So I want to come in and be like, well, what about me? I mean, like, I'm, I'm preaching today. Why am I not included in that? And Matthew will get there. I've proved to you that he gets there. But for him, he wants to start here. Because for Matthew, this whole phrase, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, it recalls this story that he's already given reference to that stretches all the way back into Genesis. And it's a story that's covered with God's people and their sin. Now, sin is a very churchy word. We, we use, you're a sinner, broken, and absolutely, that's so true. But let me just try if I can dial it out of church context for a little bit and just use a little bit loose of a word. In this context, the idea of sin, I think we could just say is failure. That humanity had failed because it had not lived up to the standard placed by God within the core of his creation. That's, that's what sin is. It's failing to live up to God's standard. And so Matthew is going to assume that you can pick up on all of these nuances by knowing this story. So Matthew, of course, begins with the genealogy of Abraham, but he also ties us back to Genesis. So does Genesis begin with the character Abraham? No. Genesis begins with two other characters, Adam and Eve. So let's talk about this story a little bit. In the story of the Hebrew Bible, we begin with humanity. So Kelsey, I'm just going to kind of march, see if you can keep with me on this, because I'm doing a whole diagram here. We'll see if this works. I don't know. God begins with the creation of humanity. He creates the entire world, but this is something made distinct and different from everything else. Humanity, man and woman, Adam and Eve, created in the very image of God to then reflect that image into God's perfect creation. They're to tend to the world. They're to take care of it. They're to live in full relationship with God, full relationship with one another. Things were made to be perfect as they took care of what God created. Here's the question. Did they pass or fail at their task? They fail. Genesis chapter 3. They take matters into their own hands. They try to do it in their own way. They take advantage of defining good and evil for themselves. And in the process, sin enters into the world. They fail, and then their generations fail, and the whole world falls into this pattern of failure. So God just abandons and says, I'm done with this project, right? No, of course not. Rather, what God's going to do is out of the entirety of humanity, God's going to call out one people. Starts with Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, but Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. So we just refer to these people as the nation of Israel. So God calls out the nation of Israel. He saves them out of captivity from Egypt. He brings them to a mountain. He gives them a law, this whole set of rules that's supposed to set them apart. They're supposed to be this blessing unto the world. They're supposed to be the demonstrative proof that relationship with God and man can exist again. They're supposed to be this beacon of peace and justice and goodness in the world around them as they serve and love God and God alone. Do they pass or fail? They fail repeatedly fail over and over and over and over again. So at this point, God just gives up on the plan, right? He says, I'm done with it. No. In fact, God calls out from the, from the world a nation, from the nation a lineage. 
the lineage of David, or what we might just say is the kings, God calls out these leaders. They're supposed to step up in leadership within this nation. They're supposed to teach this nation to love one God and one God alone. They're supposed to lead them in the ways of righteousness. They're supposed to take their thrones and march Israel into the land God created the land to be. Just generally speaking, do these kings pass or fail? They fail. Even the best of the kings, even David himself, falls into oblivion when he lusts with Bathsheba and then sleeps with her and then has her husband murdered. And there's this whole story in the Bible about that. They fail. And then this eventually leads them into exile. And there's this downward spiral that keeps on and on until Israel, until Jerusalem is ransacked. The people are taken into captivity. The temple's destroyed. And really, this is where the Hebrew Bible ends. It's a story without an ending. It, it, it just closes. Yeah, there's a couple of books about a handful of people returning to Jerusalem. But every time something good happens in that book, it'll be like, the temple was built. And it wasn't really that great. They failed to worship. They failed to do these things. It's a story of return, but it's still not complete. This is where the Hebrew Bible ends. It ends in an abundance of failure. Failure, sin that results in broken relationships between humanity and God, obliterated relationships between human and human. Uh, it fails in death and power grabs. The Old Testament is this story in desperate search for an ending. So Matthew presents Jesus then as the solution to this problem. He follows this pattern from all humanity, one people, from one people, one lineage, from that one lineage, one person, Jesus. And Jesus is going to come to save his people from their sin. And again, just a little spoiler alert here, but you're, you're a good Christian church. You kind of know the theology of this. Does Jesus pass or fail? He passes. Jesus succeeds where every person prior to him had failed. He lives as the perfect human created with unity between him and God. No broken relationships, no sin intact in him. He is the perfect representation of what humanity was created to look like. Jesus passes. And then what does he do with that? He saves. Jesus goes and he takes his passing grade and he gives it up on the cross and he passes it back to the king's. And he passes it back to Israel, and he passes it back to humanity. So Matthew is saying, Jesus saves. Israel is still in captivity because they failed to be the nation that God created them to be. But, but here's what they missed. Really, they weren't in captivated by Babylon or Persia or Rome. That wasn't what held them captive. Israel, their true captor, was sin itself, was failure. And Matthew's claim is that Jesus has come to save so yeah, there's going to be moral teachings, there's going to be miracles, there's going to be more stories to unfold and unpack, but at the core of this message, it's not a moral program to teach us how to be better people. Matthew believes that we actually can't be better people trapped in our own sin. At the core of this message is a savior that transforms us by freeing us from the very chains of sin and the very chains of failure itself that enslaves us. The opening claim of Matthew's gospel, the claim of the entire Bible, is that humanity has failed, every single person has fallen short of God's perfect creation, and rather than living as God intended us to live, we took on our own desires and made ourselves God of our own lives. And in doing so, we've wreaked havoc on this planet, on one another, on ourselves. And the 
only hope we have is from outside rescue. So where everything else failed, Jesus passes. Now, sometimes the tendency is to look at that and say, well, so first plan failed, second plan failed, third plan failed, finally plan four worked. But Matthew wants you to know that's not what happened here. So Matthew even takes you back again, and he says, verse 22, now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This was God's plan all along. This is what Matthew's saying. And then he quotes from Isaiah. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. And then God's going to take, or Matthew's going to take that name, and he's going to translate it for you. Emmanuel, it's Hebrew for uh, Emmanuel, with us. El, is short for um, El, El, God, El, yeah, it's the Hebrew word for God, Elohim. So God with us. And again, we're flooded with all of these implications. Wait, is it God with us or is it God with us who's with us? Yes, this is Matthew's point. Now, this is not just to make you feel good. This is not some therapeutic platitude for you to look around and be like, God's with me so I feel better about my stress today. This is the reality that God is not content leaving his world to rot in its own failures, but instead has continually pursued humanity to come and rescue us. This is Emmanuel come to rescue. So Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the very end of Matthew's book, Jesus has gone. He's died on the cross. He's given forgiveness of sins. And now he's going to give his final command before he ascends to set on the right sand of God. And Jesus says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of my people. No, make disciples of all nations. The my people becomes all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, teaching them to remember everything I have commanded you. By the way, what's Jesus' name? God with us? Oh yeah, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew is connecting chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28. It's the story of how Jesus rescues the kings by passing where they failed. We'll keep going, Kelsey. That Jesus rescues Israel by passing where they failed. That Jesus rescues humanity by passing where they fail. And it's because we know that Jesus rescued to the past that we can for sure say he's rescued to the future. That the arrow doesn't just extend backwards, but it extends to the future of all humanity. That anyone that would put their faith in this Savior would be rescued. The promise of 121 has been fulfilled because the man named God saved did exactly that. So, who is Jesus? I'll go quick here. But, but who is Jesus? Jesus is Emmanuel come to rescue. Jesus is God with humanity, come to rescue humanity. Now, like, likeliness is, if you've grown up in church, this may not seem all that profound to you. Like, we know that. We know that Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. But, but I would argue that this actually flies in the face of everything our modern Western culture believes to be true about the world. Because really, at the core of Western secular values is this idea that we are good enough to fix ourselves. We are good enough to fix this world. We are well-resourced enough to take care of everything. We are smart enough to tend to creation. We have the capacity within us to fix this problem. Really, this has been running since the Enlightenment like 300 years ago. 
And so this dominant philosophy of our modern world has been, hey, we are all born inherently good, and we're born with enough education and knowledge, so if we can just fill that capacity of knowledge, then we can turn this broken world back around, and we can achieve that perfect utopia. We can get there. We can have more freedoms. We can have more self-affirmation. We can get more validation. We can have more coffee shops. Like, that's, that's what it's all about. And so we'll say things. If we could just get back to that inner childlike wonder, then we would finally fix all these problems caused by those people over there. And, and I know this is silly, and, and don't, I'm going to come off like grumpy old man grouch here. I don't, I don't mean to do that. But like, go watch any secular Christmas movie. Because every single secular Christmas movie is going to be like, what's the meaning of Christmas? What's the meaning of Christmas? And then they're just going to miss it by a mile every time. So like, go, go watch Elf. And I love the movie Elf, right? But go watch Elf. What's the meaning of Christmas? Well, if we could just all get back to that inner childlike wonder that Buddy the Elf has, then we could find what the meaning of Christmas is really about. We just need to get back to that childlike wonder. Or uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. We just, we just got to convince those rich employers to go ahead and let go of their greed and be more generous with those Christmas bonuses. We'll find the meaning of Christmas in that. Like, that's, that's where the meaning of Christmas is. Or uh, a Christmas carol. If we could just get over our anger and our resentment and stop being mad and mean all the time, we could pick up this nice morality where we love each other again. That's the meaning of Christmas. Let's just love each other again. Literally, like any Christmas Hallmark movie ever, we have to just give up the hustle and bustle of the world and move to small, like, rural Christmas tree farm in Connecticut, and then we'll find the meaning of Christmas. Like, that's, that's what Christmas is all about. And I'm not saying there's not truth in some of those things. Like, that's, that's fine. But the question is, do we have the capacity to even do that? Can we get back to our own childlike wonder? Can we get back to good and loving and kind? Can we achieve those steps? And the Bible comes in and says, no, we can't. Because even in the last 300 years since we've believed this, every single attempt has failed. In fact, some would suggest that post-enlightenment world has actually been worse than the world even before it. Because in the last 300 years, we've seen colonialism and slavery and civil war and two world wars and the Holocaust and the world's worst genocide of 60 million people slaughtered under Stalin's progressive secular Russia. And here we think we're good enough. We're smart enough to fix this problem. We're well-resourced enough that we can care for this all by ourselves. And then what happens is, since I believe that I'm good enough, but the world's still broken, the only thing that I have to do is look out there and be like, well, since the problem's not here, it's got to be out there. And just welcome to modern America, right? Because I, I'm not the problem, so it must be the Democrats' fault, it's the Republicans' fault, it's Biden's fault, it's Trump's fault, it's China's fault, it's Muslims' fault, it's Christians' fault, it's rich people's fault, it's poor people's fault. I just want to hear a politician one day, I heard a pastor say this, that just gets up and says, hey, vote for me, it's my fault. <laughs> like, I'm part of the problem. Let me in office. We have failed every single time we've attempted to fix this world. Because the problem is not out there. The problem is not external. The problem is right here. The problem is our own hearts are broken. It is internal. And we cannot fix this mess we've made by tweaking our taxation model or our institutions or our political systems because the thing that needs fixed is actually a transformation within each and every one of us. This is Matthew's starting point. This is Matthew's launch. It's the opening claim of the gospel that Jesus is Emmanuel, come to rescue. And who are we? 
We are those in need of rescue. That's the only thing we can be. We desperately need rescue. But rescue can only come from outside of us. See, if you're drowning in the ocean and you don't know how to swim, it really doesn't matter how much you flail your arms around. What you need is something that can rise up above the waters, outside of the waters, that can rescue you. We cannot save ourselves. A podcast cannot rescue you. A self-help book cannot rescue you. A sermon cannot rescue you. The only one to provide true rescue is the one literally named God saves. So where do you need rescue? That's the question of Christmas. Where do you need rescue? Now sometimes we make this mistake and think what we really need rescue from is the situation. I need rescue out of this day of having to go through my lunch line. That's what I need rescue from. That's not what I needed rescue from. What I needed rescue from was forgetting my lunch boxes at school every single day. What we need rescue from is not our situation, it is our sin. That's what Jesus came to rescue us from. It's first sin. It's sin done by you. And it's sin done to you. And it's sin done around you. It's a combination of all of the above. And welcome to the true meaning of Christmas. It's not elf, it's not a Christmas carol, it's not a, meaning, a miracle on 3rd Street. The true biblical understanding is that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. He passed where everyone else had failed, and then he gave up his perfection on a cross so that we might be redeemed, set free, and rescued from our own brokenness. It is the only hope of this world. So where do you need rescue? We're going to have a time that maybe that's just something you want to pray about, God. This is what I'm struggling with and what I need rescue from, and you just need to approach not a baby in a manger, but a crucified and risen Savior who sits on a throne and say, I need help. I need rescue right now. Maybe you've received that rescue and you're just thankful and want to worship. You can do that. Maybe you've never known that rescue. You've never put your faith in a crucified, risen Messiah. I would just invite you to talk with me this morning. I would love to talk with you more about it. But at the core of Matthew chapter 1 and the core of the gospel is not just a baby in a manger. It is God saves, God with us, come to rescue us, those in desperate need of rescue. Father God, thank you for what you are and who you are. That you are our rescuer, you are our redeemer. And that in a broken world where we cannot rescue ourselves, you have offered true restoration. God, I pray that you would just be present with that. And God, if there's anyone in here that just looks at their life and says that they desperately need rescue this morning, would you show them how you rescue them, not out of situations, but out of the cause of all of the broken situations in this world, out of sin itself. God, help us to be a church that would convey that message to the world, that God with us has come, God saves has saved. The ransom of the past is the promise of the ransom of the future. We can trust everything.